welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Lachaud and Independent Print Limited. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 27. And this is a case that concerns defamation, and in particular how Section 1.1 of the still relatively recent Defamation Act 2013 should be interpreted. I think we therefore need to start with looking at subsection 1 in full, and don't worry, it isn't very long. It says, quote, A statement is not defamatory unless its publication has caused or is likely to cause serious harm to the reputation of the claimant, end quote. With that idea of serious harm at the back of our minds, let's now get into the facts of this particular case. The respondent is a man called Bruno Lachaud. He is an aerospace engineer from France who, at the time in question, had been living in the United Arab Emirates with his wife Afsana, a British national. Unfortunately, their marriage broke down and this attracted some interest from the British press for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Afsana used to be a policy advisor to former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Secondly, the circumstances of the divorce became rather messy and opened the door for some rather sloppy reporting, which certainly had an undercurrent of Islamophobia. To give a brief summary of this, Bruno began the divorce proceedings in 2011 and also tried to get custody of his son. Afsana was worried about losing her son on the basis that she would not get a fair trial in the United Arab Emirates. As a result, she went into hiding within the UAE. In 2012, Bruno was given custody of child by a UAE court, and so later on that year when he found out where his son was located, he was able to actively take custody of him and begin abduction proceedings against his now former wife. Things were then quiet for about a year, but at the start of 2014, newspaper articles began appearing that accused Bruno of various forms of abuse, threats and violence. You can probably get where the general tone of the articles were going at this point, but the sentiment was that a British woman was the victim of domestic violence and had taken her son away in order to protect him. Now the Emirati courts were going to lock her up and punish her for this. All of this had no basis in reality, and the judge would later conclude that there was no fear of violence and Afsana had instead disappeared off the map voluntarily and unjustifiably. This now takes us to a point where Bruno was able to bring defamation proceedings against the publications that ran stories along these lines, including The Independent, The Evening Standard and Huffington Post. The publishers that chose not to settle did not challenge the facts of the case, but instead argued that this was not defamatory because it did not meet the definition of serious harm that we talked about right at the start of the episode. In other words, the question for the courts was whether the damage to the reputation of Le Show caused by these articles was enough to constitute serious harm. The High Court judge found that he was able to demonstrate harm that was serious within the meaning of section 1.1. The newspapers appealed, but when the Court of Appeal concluded that the wording used in the articles served to inherently damage the reputation of Le Show, this was dismissed. However, with the law in this area still not exactly settled, the newspapers appealed once again to the Supreme Court in order to get an interpretation of serious harm. The justices began by differentiating between two different types of defamation. Defamation that is simply actionable in itself, and defamation that requires proof of special damage. This case that we have before us today is one of defamation actionable in itself, because libel, i.e. where the defamatory statement is written down and published, 
always falls into this category. On the one hand, this means that Le Show does not have to demonstrate any financial loss, but it will be necessary for him to prove serious harm to his reputation. We sort of already know this from our discussion earlier in this episode, but Lord Sumption, who gave the lead judgment in this case, pointed out that this had long been a requirement in case law before the Defamation Act 2013 received royal assent. Two key cases demonstrate this, Jamil Youssef and Dow Jones from 2005, and Thornton and Telegraph Media Group Limited from 2012, both established that there is at least a minimum threshold of seriousness that has to be met in defamation that is actionable per se. Therefore the question for the Supreme Court was if and how the 2013 Act changes this, i.e. does the legislation simply confirm what cases like Jamil and Thornton have already established, or does it take things even further? For the Court of Appeal, the application of the seriousness requirement was still limited to the actual words that were used in defamatory statement, but the Supreme Court took things much further. They held that while the Act serves to raise the minimum threshold of seriousness that a claimant must prove, it also allows for the assessment of that seriousness to take the circumstances surrounding the impact of the defamation into account. That is a significant step by Lord Sumption, so it is worth taking some time to examine the justifications that he provides. Firstly, the use of the phrase serious harm in section 1 of the Act is in itself quite telling because the previous case law only spoke in more general terms about a minimum threshold of seriousness. This not only tells us that there is now a clear standard for the courts to use, but also that a standard of serious harm is higher than what had previously derived from case law. Secondly, section 1 also includes a different phrase, has caused or is likely to cause. This is interesting because if we were to follow the case law and only look at the words of a given defamatory statement, then we wouldn't really be able to tell whether it had caused serious harm to the claimant or not. In order to judge this, we need to look at the surrounding circumstances, and so this explains why Lord Sumption decided to expand the way in which the test for seriousness is applied. Of course, that doesn't mean we can now simply ignore the words used, but instead the judge would assess the defamatory statement alongside the impact that it actually had in the real world. In the end, all of this had to be applied to the current proceedings involving Le Show, and the Supreme Court found against the newspapers after considering the offending articles, the context in which they were published, and the impact on Le Show himself. For our own analysis of this case, we really need to think about things in the wider context of defamation law in the UK, and in particular why the Defamation Act 2013 was passed. Prior to that piece of legislation, the law had operated heavily in favour of claimants, and there were a number of consequences that flowed from this. On the plus side, it meant that London was an absolute haven for defamation claims, and lawyers had been kept in clover for many years. Although, when I say that out loud, it sounds more like a negative. Anyway, the other positive aspect of this was that if you were someone that had been subject to a defamatory statement, then it was relatively easy to be compensated for it. The old case law also served to keep the infamous tabloid press on their toes when it came to publishing some of their more spurious articles. On the downside, the low threshold was not great for freedom of speech, as those in the media acted defensively, while the people who benefited the most tended to be unsalubrious individuals such as terrorists and criminals. 
As a result, the libel law reform campaign was set up and worked towards balancing the scales between claimants and defendants. The culmination of this was the Defamation Act 2013, and now that we have this background, the decision actually makes a bit more sense. Remember, Lord Sumption held that Section 1 was not simply a reiteration of the existing case law, but instead established a new test of serious harm for defamation. In other words, he was acknowledging that the Act derived from the government's efforts to resolve some of the outstanding issues in this area. That is what ultimately makes this a good decision. The judge is reading the legislation in the context in which it was made. That is not to say that the Supreme Court was departing from the words of Section 1, or that they were taking a purposive approach, but rather they were applying the words in a sensible and reasonable fashion. The test is now more difficult to satisfy, but can also now draw on a broader range of evidence. It is unlikely that this judgement alone will perfectly reset the balance between claimants and defendants, and more case law will be needed to properly understand what is exactly meant by serious harm. Nevertheless, it clearly changes the dynamic, and that alone is an important step in the right direction. One seeming contradiction that some of you might have noticed at this point is that although this move favours defendants, the claimant Lachaud actually won this case. That is true, but shouldn't deter from the main point. After all, this is still a balancing exercise for the courts, and even if there is now a higher threshold, then if that is met, a claimant should still be able to defend themselves against defamatory statements. This is what happened here, and seems to match up with what the average person on the street would make of this case. The newspapers published their stories without taking much, if any, editorial care over the truth of the allegations, but knew that raising scares and xenophobia against predominantly Muslim countries in the Middle East would earn clicks and make newspapers fly off the shelves. This decision might be a victory for free speech in this country, but it is also an important reminder that this right still comes with a matching responsibility. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com, who provides the music. Remember, you can check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver, where we cover many of the main subjects on a law course. And if you want some of those other optional subjects, such as employment law, commercial law, and family law, uh, then you can also check out some samples of my work on YouTube and buy the courses in full on my website at uklawweekly.com. I'll be back with another episode next week. For now, bye!